Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Saturday, February 17th, 2024. I'm Jared Halpern. A warning about a new Russian military threat as a Kremlin opposition leader dies in a Russian prison. We all need to realize the kind of character that Putin is and the kind of regime that he has and, and stay very strong in a united way, pushing back on the leadership within Russia, on Putin and his generals, and, and keep a strong stance. I'm Chad Pergram. An historic vote. The House voted 214 to 213 to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This highlights the GOP's continued efforts to hold the Biden administration responsible for the growing crisis at the southern border. They were able to squeak this through. Um, That really swift response from the White House, President Biden said that History would not look kindly on House Republicans. Uh, He called it a blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Outrage, but not surprise, from President Biden at the death of Kremlin opposition leader Alexei Navalny at a Russian prison colony. Make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. The president also says the tragedy should serve as a reminder of the moment. We have to provide the funding so Ukraine can keep defending itself against Putin's vicious onslaughts and war crimes. President Biden also spoke about an emerging Russian threat brought to light this week after a warning from the House Intelligence Committee concerning a space-based anti-satellite weapon in the works. So what we found out, there was a capacity to launch a system into space that could theoretically do something that was damaging. Hadn't happened yet, and uh, my my hope is it will not. The two episodes this week come as the U.S. response to Ukraine and the NATO alliance divide lawmakers and candidates. President Biden has been sharply critical of his predecessor and likely opponent this year, former President Trump, for suggesting NATO countries not spending minimum commitments on the fence won't be protected by the U.S. if attacked. I guess I should clear my mind here a little bit and not say what I'm really thinking, but let me be clear. This is an outrageous thing for president to say. I can't fathom. I can't fathom from Truman on. They're rolling over in their graves here in this. But retired Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, who was national security advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence, says the NATO commitments must go both directions. We spoke about the former president's comments, Russia's space threats and the death of Alexei Navalny. You know, with Navalny, he was obviously a critic of Putin and and Putin put him away in in the middle of nowhere in a penal colony. And he was just designed to 
cut out all of his competitors. And that's what's happened. And, and you know, I, the volume is only 47 years old. You know, and you kind of look at this and you go, okay, kind of scratch your head. This is kind of typical of somebody like Putin. You know, remember, Vladimir Putin is a retired lieutenant colonel from the KGB. The furthest west he'd ever been in postings was dressed in Germany. He thinks he's a reincarnate of Peter the Great. And he just suppresses all his enemies. Look what he did with Prigozhin, who is his friend, an old buddy, who probably violated one of the critical rules, which is loyalty. And they basically blew him out of the sky. I know he doesn't admit that, but he really did. Uh, so, so I think it's just, it's Putin's running true to form with what, what he does with his enemies and its suppression. And I think he did it, it was done now. And of course, everybody say, well, you really can't prove it. Well, okay, you kind of assume it. It was right before the elections that are coming up. You can take Navalny off the stage. And there's, there's really nobody else out there after Navalny that is really pushing back against Putin. So, yeah, it was internal. This is what he's done. Shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. What should the response be from the West? Well, the response should be what he's doing right now, which is pretty good outrage and understanding what they're facing. I think the most important thing they could do are the consequences. And what I mean by consequences is realize that you are that you are now dealing with an adversary, and they are an adversary. Remember, adversary definitionally is not necessarily an enemy, but there's somebody that you're opposing. We all need to realize the kind of character that Putin is and the kind of regime that he has and, and stay very strong in a united way, pushing back on the leadership within Russia, on Putin and his generals, and, and keep a strong stance. That's what needs to be done. You're not going go to go to general quarters or war over Navalny, but it should stiffen everybody's spine and for everybody to understand what kind of opponent you are facing or adversary you're facing in Vladimir Putin. Pretty clear. I don't know if there are any more sanctions left uh, in, in the um, yeah. in, in the bucket, but is is that a response that you would expect? No, you know, he's, you know, we use sanctions, especially after Crimea and they, you know, they work in the short term, but, you know, over the long term, he was able to work around him. And as long as you've got an alliance with Iran and China, it's going to be really hard for them to take over. He kind of, he kind of set himself up. He knew they were coming. And, and I'll tell you, sanctions only go so far and he said, okay, maybe it makes you feel good, but it really hasn't done very much clearly. Uh, with Putin. It hasn't derailed him at all. I just need, you need to take a very firm stand, both diplomatically and economically, which we've done with the sanctions and militarily by supporting, you know, Ukraine with the equipment they needed, which by the way, Jared, we really haven't done. Uh, and just push back on them. Let me talk about uh, some of the other news this week, this um, mm -hmm. intelligence report that, that kind of, I, I think, became public despite the White House uh, wanting it to uh, with this space-based anti-satellite weapon that, that Russia apparently is developing. It's not been launched. It, it's not, uh, doesn't have any capabilities yet, but um, it, it would be, according to, to the White House, in clear violation of existing treaties that, that Russia has signed on to. How worried should, you know, people just listening to this show be that, that Russia is developing this type of capability? Well, you have to read each word very carefully. If it's in violation of treaties, the biggest treaty you have got in outer space is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which mm -hmm. clearly says you cannot put weapons of mass destruction in space. Read nukes. So you can't go there if that's the violation. If they violate that treaty, meaning they, the Russians, 
then that really shows to me that's it. They've got a reckless military and they, they don't care where they're going with the norms. And we have to think, figure out very hard where we are going to go. Anti-satellite technology has been out there for a lot of years. We have an ASAT capability. The Chinese do, the Brits do, the French do, the Indians do as well. And so that's not anything new. It's the mode that you're talking about it being transported in. And the reason why that's so important to me is if you have to put, if they do something like that, and you put a nuclear weapon into space, well, it's not necessarily an anti-satellite weapon. What you actually created is an EMP weapon, which we really haven't seen, an electromagnetic pulse. Because if you put a one megaton nuclear weapon in space and you, and at 60,000 feet and you detonate it over, let's say, the United States, you have now provided an electronic kill zone of over 1,000 miles wide. That should be the big concern. How you get around this and how you lessen the concerns Americans have is the president, which he can do, he can declassify that information, tell the American people what you're talking about. Uh, because I'm really concerned people are going to clutch their pearls, grab their go bags, and head down to the beach, and you don't want that to happen. So explain what is actually happening and what is going on. And the, part of the problems I have with Washington, D.C., they don't tell the American people the full story. Are there are underlying methods of why they are doing this today. Is this in, and you see some of the skepticism that's arising. And people are saying, well, this is really kind of pushing the, the Ukraine aid package. That's what they're really trying to do. Well, I don't know. And in this town, you have to assume that may be part of it. But let's find out. And, and again, if it isn't the capability and they haven't put that in motion, and this is what we're only thinking about, that's much, much different than actually doing it. And, and nobody's put a nuclear weapon that we're over in space because nobody really knows what's going to happen if you put one up there, especially if you put it up there, kind of hard to retrieve and also hard to maintain. So nobody really knows because we've never gone there. And I hope the it Russians does. don't go there. Uh, and so, I mean, it, it's sort of a similar question to the Navalny question, right, is what, what is the response? We, we have heard from the yeah. White House that they've reached out to the Russians to, to try and understand this. They are uh, in consultation with, with partners and allies yeah. um, to, to kind of assess all of this. Um, is this something that, that can be solved diplomatically? I mean, it seems like during the Cold War, um, there was an awful lot of diplomacy that it maybe cooled tensions down when, when they really were ratcheted up high. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, you always, always, Jared, keep the lines of communi communications open. That's very, very important. Being able to talk to your adversaries, even allies as well, that's important. But, but if something like this has ever happened, then you have to lay down very clearly internationally. You say, mm -hmm. okay, we are going to make sure that if you do put that you up, up in space, you have violated the law, uh, the, the treaty we all signed on to, and we're going to take it down. And is there a capability and capacity to do something like that? Within the NATO alliance, sure there is. So you basically tell them that. If you want to, you know, but you have to be willing to go there. You have to be willing to take and do the tough message and the tough actions. That's what Putin is counting on. Putin is not counting on putting something up there. He's counting on the West not having the will and knows there's a lack of will on, on, on pushing back against him. He saw that in Ukraine. He's seen that elsewhere. You've got to be able to do that because what he understands is force. He understands strength. And if we're not willing to do that, he's, you know, he's, he's truly a rogue leader with a rogue military, and they're going to have to do something about that. And that means take strong action. And that means not just diplomatic action. That means economic action as well, but also potentially military action. You have to put them all together, just not one.
And so I guess that kind of brings us to to this longstanding debate that's happening here in Washington over Mm -hmm. uh, the security package and aid for for Ukraine. Um, Do these two events, the Navalny death, uh, this intelligence about um, wanting to to weaponize space, uh, does that up the ante for for Congress to, to get this done? Well, okay. This goes back to my concern: is 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 Congress being gamed a little bit here? Is there really a serious threat? If it is, tell the American people, or we should we should really be concerned about it. Are you just using this to game it and get that aid across the line? Uh, and, and it goes back to what two years ago. You know, this is how we should have been acting hard two years ago. But look, I th- this I'd say is part of the West problem. You know, when you look at what happened in Ukraine with the Russian army, and this is something I've said publicly, in the first six months, the Russian army was on its heels. You had an opportunity, we the West, you Ukraine, had an opportunity to knock Russian out of the fight, the Russian army, because they were badly mauled. If you had, if we had done that, if you had done that Ukraine, I believe Putin would have fallen because he could not have survived losing the Russian army in the field. Prigozhin saw that when he did his mutiny, because they had a free run at Moscow, and, and you saw what happened, of course, afterward, Pavel Progosin. But but there was an opportunity to do that. We didn't capitalize on it. And what I mean by that is, did we give them the jets they need? No, we didn't then. We still haven't given them the jets they need. It took us forever to give them long-range artillery and the attack them systems that are out there. We gave them 31 Abrams tanks. That's less than a battalion of tanks. So we are kind of talked a big game, but we were half-hearted in, in what we gave them. And we should have done that earlier. Now we're in a kind of a predicament like, oh, well, well, maybe we need to really give them more. Well, it's a little bit late. We've, you, we've gone through our ammunition stockpiles. You know, the rate of ammunition that the Russians are using today, the amount of fires they're, they're using against the Ukrainians, that would eat up the entire stockpile of the United Kingdom's artillery in two days. Think about that. But so we should have said argument- it two years ago. That's going to be the argument, though, I've heard from supporters of aid is that this is a really good at least from their perspective, a, a really good return on investment, right? Because the U.S. is spending, in this case, would be another $60 billion on, on military equipment for Ukraine um, that is having a, a pretty substantial impact on, yeah. on Russia's fighting capabilities. Well, it really isn't. I mean, the, the Russians are in an attrition fight. They've got more manpower than the Ukrainians have right now. See, I would my pushback would be, okay, what is the desired end state that you're going to right now with this fighting in Ukraine? You've got to be able to explain it to me because what you've done, you're basically saying to Ukrainians, we are going to give you more equipment, more ammunition, and we are going to support you to the death of every last Ukrainian. Because when you look at the demographics of Ukraine, let's just say the numbers are around 150,000 dead between the age for Ukrainians, between the age of 25 and 35. Okay, demographically, you're starting to lose a generation. The British learned this in World War One. They called it the lost generation because of the trench warfare. So you're saying, okay, if you ever get to attrition fight, which they're in right now with the Russians, you don't win a fight with an attrition with the Russians. You might win a war of maneuver, but not one of attrition because they have the advantage of five and six to one. So, so he said, okay, it makes you feel good. And we give, we build up American uh, uh, industry, the defense industry. We should have been doing that two years ago. And, and we're giving them the stuff they need to fight with. But where's your end state? How do you get to an end where you basically say, as President Trump did, okay, let's stop the killing and then think about where we're going to go. 
Because if this continues, are we willing to support we the West? Okay, another year, two years. This fight's been going on for almost three years now. And you say, okay, I don't understand where there's an end state or what they're going to be doing to get where they want to go. And, and that's where we haven't been very good in explaining to the American people. So all we're saying is give more stuff. But we haven't done that in the past. We said, well, this is good for the American economy. Really? There are young men and women dying over there. And, and we ought to figure out how to at least get rid of, you know, stop it, or at least bring peace to the region. And if you bring peace to the region, then you can, you can pivot to the, to the Chinese, which is important. But figure out how do you provide security to guarantees to the Ukrainians, which they don't have now, and how do you stop the killing and basically build Ukraine into the Sparta of Central Europe if you want to do that? So I, I, I'm a little bit frustrated that this really sounds good. It, it really it, it, it speaks well. You can talk about it with good talking points. But I don't know where the end state is because nobody's told me where the end state is. I just want to sort of understand. So your position is that we, the, the Congress probably should not take this up. No, I, I said not until the, the administration says this is where we're going and this is what we're going to do. I'd say, no, stand back and say to them, look, force the administration to say this is what we're trying to do. President Biden, pick up the phone and talk to Putin. Pick up the phone and talk to Zelensky. Try to bring this to some type of agreement, which we haven't been able to do out there because it's the, our position in this administration for the Biden administration is as long as it takes, as much as it takes. That's a bumper sticker. That's no way to end a war. You know, I, that's not how you should end wars and what figure out a way to, to get ahead of this. What would you say to Ukrainians who, who would say, why, why is it up to us to, to make concessions? We were invaded. That's up to them to do it. It's their country. Figure out how to do it. I, by the way, you, I don't say at all. I never have that. What you say to the Ukrainians is you give up land. You don't do that at all. You don't acknowledge that you've given up land. It's sort of like going back to what Germany did in the mid 50s with Chancellor Adenauer when he was the chancellor of Germany, you know, there was East Germany and West Germany. He realized his goal was to eventually unify Germany, which eventually happened out there. But he ever never acknowledged that East Germany was a lost part of his country. Never did. And I don't think they, we should tell the Ukrainians to do so as well. We should say, OK, this is something we do long term, because in all candor, they're not going to do it by force of arms. Even Zaluzny, the former general, the four star general of the Ukrainian forces in The Economist, made the comment, we're into a stalemate. Well, of course they are, because we allowed it to get there. This is one of those, everybody's saying, well, what do you say today when this is going to happen? I go back and say, look, why weren't you talking like this two years ago? Why weren't you doing this when they asked for jet fighters? We didn't give it to them. When they asked for long-range artillery, we didn't give it to them. When they asked for armored vehicles, we didn't give it to them. I challenge everybody to say, look, you had an opportunity to do it. You had an opportunity to change that dynamic. And now you're stuck with what you've got. Now, how do you create some advantage for the Ukrainians? You sure don't give up on them, but how do you give them security guarantees? How do you make sure they can stop the fight so they can reconstitute and rearm if necessary? We haven't done it. So in the, as part of this, this debate and the, the case that, that President Biden is making to Congress and, and certainly to the American people, he has uh, tied in uh, certainly the comments of his predecessor and likely uh, general election opponent, the former President mm -hmm. Trump, that, you know, there seems to be an unwillingness to, to keep NATO unified and certainly making a, a point of, of the comment that uh, the former president made about mm -hmm. letting Russia do what it wanted if countries didn't pay their their two percent of defense uh, spending in NATO. Is this a time to sort of signal backing away or weakening the NATO alliance? 
Well, they've, they've signaled that themselves. In 2014, during the Wales Declaration, uh, the, the member states of NATO all said their goal was to get to 2% of GDP spending on defense and 20% of that was modernization within 10 years, 2024. When you look at the NATO treaty, everybody talks about Article 5 and attack on one is attack on all. People forget there's Article 3. And Article 3 is basically the funding article. Will all the member nations agree that they will individually provide defense support and for the individual and collective defense of NATO? That's in the treaty. And even if you go back to the consultation agreement, which is Article 9, that they talks about Article 3 and Article 5 together. Okay, you've got an obligation to get there. Okay, you haven't done it. So who's sending the message of weakness? The pe people who are sending the message of weakness is two-thirds of NATO, which happens, hasn't got to 2%. That includes, by the way, the third largest economy in the world, Germany. So you go, why haven't you gotten there? You've talked about it for a long time. If you want to show a united front, that everybody has a united front, you're part of an alliance, you build up to 2%, you all agree to do it. You know, when you look at NATO countries and you look at defense spending and you take all the NATO countries and you put them together and you take all of their defense spending and put it in one pile, the United States of America is double that. And a G our GDP on spend defense spending is 3.5. So you ask these other nations, why haven't you done it? So it's not former President Trump saying that. It's that you look at the alliance itself said if they're not willing to do it. And some of them are the big nations of, of NATO. Canada, Italy, and, and, and Germany. I'm sorry. He, he did the, sort of signal that, that he would like not respond at all if one of these countries was invaded, right? Is that, yeah. is that appropriate? Well, I, well he, I think he's trying to make it. It's, I think he's trying to make a point. The fact of the matter is the trade is pretty clear. The attack on one's an attack on all. I think it's a forcing function. That's his frustration. When you say it's appropriate, I think what's inappropriate is for NATO nations, two thirds of them, not to do what they're supposed to be doing. And that's where you send a clear message out there. So I'd, I'd, I'd push back and say, no, nah, you've got a requirement out there. And Stoltenberg knows that as he's the secretary general of NATO. He knows what they're supposed to be doing. And so they're starting to move a little bit towards towards the 2%. But that's the critical part. Look, you look at a country like Germany. Germany, when I was in Germany stationed there years ago, mm -hmm. one of the most powerful militaries in Europe. When you look at over 500,000 troops, over 2,000 main battle tanks, now they're a shell of what they were before. They have over about 200 tanks that are really operational. They really can't look east if they want to. That's a huge, huge drawdown for the United States of America. So you're saying to so I would tell the American people, let me get this right. Third largest economy in the world, Germany. You're not willing to defend yourself. Why should we ask the American people when our borders, there is no southern border, and that, to me, is the largest national security issue of the day. Why should we can be concerned about you in Europe if you're not willing to support yourself, if we can't confirm and support our own borders? And I think it's a hard choice. It's a hard sell. I know it sounds harsh, but you almost have to ask yourself, OK, where does the American largesse end? You know, I go back to what happened years ago, and I, I, I used to talk to the former president, Bob Lighthizer, former U.S. Mm -hmm. trade representative, about this. You know, there, there's a great professor up at Yale. Uh, Paul Kennedy, who wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers from 1500 till they wrote in 1988. And when he wrote it, he said he looked at why nations fail and they fail because of what he termed imperial overreach. I called it strategic overreach. What it means is you spend more money external to your country than you do internal to your country. You fix other nations' potholes before you fill the potholes of your own country. And nations fall because of that. And I think as Americans, you have to sit back and say, 
okay, what's important? What's important is the United States of America first, and then we can help everybody else. But you as an alliance, you signed on to this, and you signed on to the agreements back in Wales in 2014. It's part of the NATO treaty that you're part of, Article 3, which says this is what you'll do before Article 5 comes into play. And they haven't done it. So, I mean, that's all. Do I understand it sounds harsh? It does. But I I tell everybody, look, this is serious. War is a serious business. And so is national security. And you're not owning up to it. So that's my pushback to a lot of people when they they clutch their pearls and get excited about it. I'm just trying to understand it a little bit, because obviously you started this conversation saying that, you know, Putin responds to strength and Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I suppose if he were, believed that there wouldn't be a response, what what would maybe prevent Russia from, you know, doing yeah. in in the Baltics what they are doing currently in in Ukraine, right? Well, okay. You, well, I, when you look at the Baltics, you say, okay, to start with, all three of those countries up there are all at two percent GDP, so they kind of okay. meet the criteria that you want to go to, to go to war in. But part of that is presidential will. You've got to be willing as a president to take the hard call and do make the hard choices. And that is sometimes gear up the nation for war. If you're going to and he has to understand that Putin has to believe we're serious about it. You, you know, when I look when he went, went into Crimea in 2014. OK, there was some reason he went in there because he believed there was weakness. And then he didn't go anywhere under President Trump because he realized there was going to be some type of resolution and some type of strength. And then he went in when President Biden came in and, and he looked at the United States and he said, OK, we've seen what they've kind of done. You know, when when President Obama said, I'm going to put uh, there's a red line when Syrians use nerve gas and the civilians, they use nerve gas. Nothing happened when we came in. Syrians used nerve gas on civilians and sarin nerve gas. We responded with Tomahawk land attack missiles, point made. When you look at uh, Osama, when you look at uh, um, al-Baghdadi from ISIS, mm-hmm. we said we were going to reduce the caliphate, which was the size of Britain. We did, and we killed Baghdadi, point taken. When you look what happened with Soleimani after they attacked the U.S. embassy, we killed Soleimani, the, the, probably the most charismatic general the, the Iranians had, you know, point taken. When the Russian forces under Wagner attacked U.S. forces uh, in Syria, uh, we responded quite heavily, killed well over 150 of them. And we had, we told the Russians clearly what we we're doing, point taken. So Putin would step back and go, OK, we're not sure where this guy's going to go. They, that's guy meaning Trump. And we're going to but we understand he'll probably take some hard action if he wants to do it. OK, if you do that, it sets a tone. And that's all part of presidential decision making. But if the opposite occurs, then you go, okay, maybe I can push the envelope on it. Remember, Joe Biden, when when President Obama went after Osama bin Laden, in the Situation Room, he was the one individual that recommended they not go on that raid to kill bin Laden. Okay, when you look at what he has done previously and what he said, and when you look at others have said, like Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense of the United States, said, and he reinforced that in an Atlantic interview, and this is out of his book, Duty, when he said Joe Biden's been wrong on nearly every national security decision in the last 40 years. This is somebody like a Bob Gates. So you say, okay, so your adversaries read you. We do the same thing with our adversaries. You read them. What kind of decision-making process do they use? Are they hard decision-makers? Are they soft decision-makers? And then adversaries respond to that. And when I looked at what they did with President Trump, Adversaries didn't respond negatively towards that. They kind of backed away. Then you because you have to ask yourself the question: Why did Putin invade Crimea, uh, Ukraine in 2014, and why did he do it during the Biden administration? 
and all and all the pushback? Why do you see what's happening in the Middle East? Why do you see the Saudi Arabians make a peace deal with the Iranians using the Chinese instead of the United States of America? Why do you see when the President Biden says to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the next successor to King, King Salman, when he greets President Biden with a fist bump, and how do they greet Trump? They treat him. They greeted him with having a big lavish sword dance. So I, these are all critical parts that all play together when it comes to national security. And and I think you have to look at it that way. And there, some are hard choices. I've got it, and it sounds harsh. I've kind of got that. But the most important thing you have to look at is what is best for the United States of America, and then how do you once you set yourself in a good condition, how do you respond from there? And I don't think we've done that. And I think we need to do that. We did it before. We can do it again. We should do it again. I'll uh, leave it there. Uh, General, I appreciate your insight. A lot of, of ground covered. I appreciate you uh, you sticking around to do all of that. And uh, have, have a great weekend. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Chad Pergram, and I'm here with Fox News congressional correspondent and my colleague, Aisha Hosni. Another historic event here for this Republican majority. We've seen so many over the last uh, year here. Mayorkas now only the second cabinet member ever to be impeached by the House, and, and they really pulled it off by a hair. I mean, just one vote came down to 214, 213. Uh, They had a couple absences, which I don't think anyone was really expecting. Mm -hmm. I I heard one Republican was stuck on a plane in Florida. uh, So I know people were trying to get back here. But uh, even with the absences, I believe two on each side, they got this done uh, with, of course, the return of Majority Leader Steve Scalise. And the same three Republicans, Chad, who voted no last week, voted no again. Mike Gallagher, Ken Buck, Tom McClintock. And uh, they were able to squeak this through. Um, Got really swift response from the White House. President Biden said that history would not look kindly on House Republicans. Uh, He called it a blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship. So the question is, what happens next now that we have created history here on Capitol Hill? And so... We'll see the impeachment managers, 11 of them, Chad, I believe, that will deliver the articles of impeachment to the Senate. That would have happened this week, but the Senate is, of course, out of session, out of town, so it has to be delayed. When the Senate does return, sounds like Leader Schumer is going to take this up immediately. He has to. Senators will be sworn in as jurors for the trial. And then at that point, Chad, he can do a couple different things. He can either go straight to trial He can punt this to a special committee chosen by him and GOP leader Mitch McConnell, or he can file a motion to dismiss, um, and that really only needs a simple majority to pass. Um, Another part of this that was really interesting was this was happening the same day as that special election up in New York, and it was really important for Republicans to get this done before uh, that race was called, because as they feared that George Santos's seat flipped to Democrat, and now you have Tom Suozzi, 
you know, coming in now to be sworn in as another member of, of House Democrats and, and Speaker Johnson is now looking at, at an even slimmer majority. So they really had to get this done this week and they were able to pull it off really by a hair. Yeah, it was quite close. So we thought they were going to do it this time, but not quite as high a drama as we had last week. Yeah. That was rather remarkable when this went down, uh, you know, a week and a half ago. But I'll tell you, you know, this is the question for Republicans. Is this kind of a proxy for impeaching President Biden? You know, they've talked about impeaching a host sure. of Biden uh, officials. They talked about Merrick Garland. Uh, they talked about Christopher Wray. They talked about uh, Matthew Graves, who's the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. And now they finally settled on Alejandro Mayorkas. And I was told last summer when they started to kind of float this, that Mayorkas was the term used on me, the low hang hanging fruit. But uh, but mm. what, what happens with the Biden impeachment now? I know that they're bringing in James Biden and Hunter Biden in the next couple of weeks for depositions. But uh, it doesn't seem like they're anywhere close to the, the votes uh, to possibly impeach there if they had so much trouble impeaching uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. Well, and you could say in some respects they had to do something on the border mm -hmm. after they um, essentially killed that Senate you know, bipartisan border deal. Which brings me to what the Senate passed earlier this week and sent over to the House, this $95 billion package for global aid, including $60 billion for Ukraine. A lot of money going all over the world and, and really nothing about the border. And... Uh, you know, it seems like Speaker Johnson is sort of dismissing this um, and, and will not bring this up for a vote, Chad. Yeah, and that's where we've had a lot of conversations here about is there a way around the speaker? There is. It's something called a discharge petition. Uh, they're not uh, successful very often, only two in the past 22 years. And a discharge petition is where you get a solid number of 218 votes in the House of Representatives, regardless of the size. It has to be 218. And in this case, you would need, you know, a lot of Democrats and some Republicans. And you go around the speaker and you put the bill on the floor. Uh, is that possible? There are some Democrats who are very much in favor of this. There are some liberals who are very much against this. Jerry Nadler is for this. Uh, but you take some progressives because they don't like uh, the provisions in the bill for Israel and Israel's treatment and its prosecution of the war uh, with Hamas and you know, civil rights, um, human rights issues in Gaza. So that's a problem uh, for some uh, Democrats there. But, you know, could you get some Republicans? All right. Yes, uh, there are some hawks who want to help Ukraine, who want to help Israel. That is, in fact, a possibility here. But uh, you have some members of the majority who are just not willing to go down that road. Right. Uh, you have Don Bacon, a Republican from Nebraska, who's a moderate, uh, who's somebody who might be a prime target to be signing on to this. Uh, you know, he's not quite there yet. Uh, you had Dan Newhouse, the Republican from Washington State, another moderate who says, uh, you know, he's not sure just yet. But I thought it was very telling from Mario Diaz-Balart. This is the Republican from Florida, uh, has been around a long time as an appropriator. And he said, no, he said, you don't do that when you're in the majority, because what happens is it undercuts your, your majority and it undercuts uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson. So that's kind of where we are on that. Nothing is going to happen eminently on this. The reason is that the House of Representatives is out for a week uh, at the end of this week. And then we're into an impeachment trial in the Senate. And then we're uh -huh. off to trying to fund the government at the end of the month. I should that's going to be the next big uh, challenge it feels up like here. There's a pattern of behavior here on Capitol Hill. I have a question for you, though, in terms of foreign aid. What are you hearing about, you know, two other paths here, either to split the foreign aid package into, you know, separate pieces, vote on Ukraine separately from Israel, making this an easier vote for some, and then perhaps, you know, trying to 
maybe add some of your own border security provisions if you're House Republicans onto this and sending this back to the Senate. What are you hearing about those two options? That is definitely a possibility. Mike Johnson, the speaker, has not been willing to say much of anything there. In fact, there's been Mm -hmm. some criticism that he doesn't have a plan on how to deal with this, and that's coming from Republicans, frankly. I talked to Mike Rogers from Alabama. He is the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and he indicated what he would like to do is take what the, the Senate has done add some border provisions, and we're not talking about H.R. 2. H.R. 2 is the very strict border bill that the House passed last spring, but take some border security provisions and send that back to the Senate. Now, we don't know the specifics. You could imagine that there might be some Senate Democrats who would be for that. There might be some House Democrats who are for that. Uh, The question uh, is that if you put some border provisions in there, and it's not H.R. 2, you know, if the conservatives in the House and conservatives in the Senate were going to criticize the bill put together in the Senate, the border bill by James Lankford from Oklahoma, Kristen Sinema from Arizona, Chris Murphy from Connecticut, I want to see what those border provisions are here that suddenly magically work in the House of Representatives. <laughs> because there's politics involved. Oh, I'm shocked, oh, shocked. Yes. There's gambling inside the casino here, Aisha. That, and, that, and, and a lot of people will tell you that's why they killed the bill. It's just that, that simple. But you know what? There's really nothing that ever really dies on Capitol Hill, right? I mean, you remember Build Back Better. It turned into something completely different. They had to change the name of it and kind of, you know, retool it. But it never really died. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, something that was that had bipartisan support in the Senate is retooled over in the House. And and I also sometimes think about, you know, the former president obviously wants a big, uh, he's always looking for a big victory to talk about on TV. And, And my thought was there were rumblings that he might be heading to the border at some point. And perhaps he sort of tries to, you know, get either Speaker Johnson or himself trying to negotiate, like you said, some some parts of H.R. 2, some things that they could call a victory and then send that back to the Senate and, and claim that as a win. So there's not, yeah, you're right. There's always politics at play and everybody, each side wants to come out looking like the winner. Aisha, you could definitely see something maybe rising like a phoenix. There's a, uh, a line <laughs> in one of the Star Wars movies where they say, you know, nobody is ever really dead or gone. And I think that might be the case with this border bill uh, at some point. You know, we'll see. And, and just the fact that it is an election year and this works counter to conventional wisdom about what the universe is like to get things done. Sometimes that forces both sides because Republicans can say, hey, we did get something. And Democrats or Republicans might say we got something because, you know, the way that Tom Swasey ran that race. And yeah. that was kind of a, a road test for how they would message on immigration and border policy. Uh, that might be something well, that Democrats would Democrats- try to use. And, yeah. Democrats tend to do better in special elections, too. We have to remember that. But you're right. I mean, they will use that as a blueprint, right, for for the rest of the year. Um, So we'll see how that goes as well. And then we see if the House Republicans can keep the House in November. That's another big question, too, because we've had we talk about this every day. We've had a number of folks decide that they are not coming back. They're not running for reelection. And this week, man, I mean, it it was stunning. Uh, We had chairwoman, chairman, chairman, one after another deciding we're done, we're calling it quits. That was that was a big deal too. And, and some of that is because you see members who don't think that they can, you know, maintain the majority. That's why they, they quit. Number two, it's not as fun to be around here. It's a divided Congress. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of divisiveness in, in, on top of that. So that's the other issue. The one that I was surprised by was Mark Green. He was just elected in 2018, uh, rose rather meteorically to become the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, uh, executed the impeachment of Mayorkas here, is going to be the lead impeachment manager. 
and he is cashing it in. I mean, it's just extraordinary uh, to see, uh, you know, who's heading for the exits. And, and that's that, that's really the atmosphere on Capitol Hill right now. It's not been a very fun place the past several years, you know, starting during the Trump years, certainly the riot. Uh, you know, people, you know, censures of one another, just the, the, the infighting, not getting a lot done. Republicans fighting among themselves, really, really struggling just to get the basic mechanics every day of putting their own bills on the floor. You know, you know that two of those things blew up just this past week, and that makes it very yeah. challenging. Yeah. Isha, what's the one thing we need to know going into the recess week? Something that you're aware of, something you've We been need to know what this national security threat is, Chad. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know, I think everyone, everyone needs to know because it seems like a lot of folks on Capitol Hill, at least leadership, has known something has been percolating, um, you know, uh, Speaking of, you know, uh, Intel Chairman Mike Turner put out this memo uh, this week and said, uh, you know, we've come across this classified information. It's deeply troubling and we need to, um, you know, declassify it to share with the public and to share really with our NATO allies. And from our wonderful White House reporter, Jackie Heinrich, you know, mm -hmm. she's been able to uh, gather a few more details here that this has to do with some sort of a uh, space related uh, weapon or weapon system um, and perhaps tying it back to Russia. It might be a Russian weapon. But Speaker Johnson also says that he, he's, he's been aware of it. He knew about it for a month. He's been trying to get a, a, a a meeting with uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, and uh, that meeting is going to happen. And hopefully uh, they'll get more information about this and perhaps be able to tell the American public something. Because now, you know, the whole city, the whole town is talking about, is buzzing about this um, unknown national security risk. You know, not to make light of this here, but it, it, when they said, okay, we had this threat, and then they said it was from outer space. And this just kind of shows you how I think I should. I was immediately thinking. Chad, of the, I immediately thought it too. Uh, and, and, and to clue the, the listeners in here, from Little Shop of Horrors, okay, the movie, the Broadway show here, the opening line is, on the 23rd day of the month of September, in an early year of a decade, not too long before our own, the human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as such enemies often do, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places. And the idea was that Audrey II, the plant, had come from outer space and was going to destroy the human race. So... I don't know. Well, I still I still have hope that if, if aliens do exist, Chad, and they want to come meet us, that it's not going to be a security threat. That hopefully they'll be very, very kind. And, and maybe perhaps, as some lawmakers on Capitol Hill believe, they might just be us from the future. That's right. <laughs> yes. What's the song? Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. That's the line in Little Shop of Horrors. So. All right. What a, wacky, well, should... what, a, what a wacky time we're living in. <laughs> Indeed. It's great. It's, you know, they might not be able to get anything done, but we certainly have good fodder to discuss. <laughs> well, I should thank you. Good to talk with you. You too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, a special election in New York shrinks an already historically slim margin for House Republicans, and the winning campaign may offer insights in the voters' concerns about the border and immigration. We'll look at the results and the policies they could produce. And did you catch that nostalgic Super Bowl ad supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential bid? Jessica Rosenthal and Carl Rove discuss the success political advertising has for campaigns. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.